0: Uh, this is a News Radio fourteen forty podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. As always, I'm your host Caleb Cockwit. It is fantastic to be with you this evening, and as you can tell, it is a special evening. The Rays are going up against the Dodgers in Game Six. They are behind by a game, and uh, this is it, guys. No more losses. If the Rays lose even one more game, they're gone, so I'm pulling for them. I hate the fact that I, unfortunately, I just happen to be doing a show in the middle of game six, but that's the way that it goes sometimes. Work comes before pleasure, uh, or, you know, soul-crushing defeat depending on how the outcome of this game goes, but we'll have it wrapped up probably before the seventh or eighth inning. I'm hoping so. This is not going to be a a particularly long show, even though there is a lot to go over. We're going to be kind of rapid firing tonight as much as possible, and that's mostly because what was actually supposed to be happening tonight, I wasn't supposed to have a show. We're having this really big event here at Faulkner University. We're going to have a big drive-in movie And it turns out that they were predicting thunderstorms by eight o'clock, which meant that we canceled it. And I'm kind of wondering if that was the right call, because there hasn't been a drop of rain yet, and it's already well past when they were predicting that it would start. So it could be that the weather people just completely screwed us (laughs) and we canceled for no reason. But, you know, I I hope that we didn't cancel for no reason, but more importantly, the Rays, who, of course, are the farm team. They are the owners of the Biscuits. And so the Biscuits are their farm team. And that's one of the reasons that I've been a Rays fan for several years now. In fact, uh, let me see if I can even turn around a little bit there. Yeah, I don't know if you can tell. That's a Longoria jersey shirt. And Evan Longoria, of course, one of the big superstars that came through the Biscuits organization. And even though he's not with the Tampa Bay Rays anymore... Evan Longoria, one of my favorite players, and certainly did appreciate watching him there in Tampa, watching him here in Montgomery when he was here. Uh, Unfortunately, not for very long, but he's probably the most famous, I would say maybe other than David Price, probably the most famous of all the Biscuits players. And so certainly great to have uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, the parent company of our own Montgomery Biscuits, of course, which... News Radio 1440 is a a sponsor of. It's really great to have them in the World Series and I'd pull for almost anybody other than the Dodgers. Only team I I could probably say I would pull for uh, that I that I would not pull for against the Dodgers is the Yankees. I hate the Yankees just as much if not more than the Dodgers. And so if that happens, I don't know what I would do. But you know, we're pulling for the Rays, but I actually am a fan of the Rays. They've already beaten my my Braves, the Dodgers have, and, and now it's time for the Rays to come back and, and come out with a Game 6 and Game 7 win to clinch and, and to take the World Series and become World Champs for the first time in their franchise history. So I'm really, really looking forward to that if it does come to pass. Hopefully that can be the case. Guys, it's 2020. I really need a win. <laughs> I really, really need a win here. And it doesn't look like Trump's doing so well in the election. It doesn't, uh, I mean, Auburn is probably not going to have a great season. The The Dodgers, or sorry, the Braves already lost. I really, really need a win this year. So come on, Rays, you can pull it out, I believe in you. And we actually do have several big things before we get into the news of the day, even though I know that we've we've spent a lot of time talking about this several big events that are on the horizon because of election day. First of all, since it is the last show, the last show before election day, I am going to be doing a ballot, a a, a giant ballot special. And so we do this every single election day. I've been doing this ever since I've been on the radio and actually a little bit before back when I was just on a podcast. We're going to go down line by line, Every measure on the ballot here in the state of Alabama, there's, I believe, six amendments that we're going to go through each and every one of them. I'm actually going to try to bring on a couple of special guests and see if we can go through them, which I've never done before. But I think it might be really interesting to have somebody else's opinions and, and somebody that I can go back and forth on, because uh, there's one person in particular that I'm thinking of that I think we actually have a disagreement on one of the amendments. And so that'll be interesting to have that have sort of a back and forth and a disagreement on that. So that is our ballot extravaganza that is coming up on Thursday, since it is our last show before the election. If not, we may just do a special one on Monday. I don't foresee there being any problems, but Thursday is probably the day that we're going to, to do that. So be looking for that on Thursday. And another big thing, I'm going to tell you who I'm going to vote for. I don't endorse people. I don't tell you who to vote for, but I'm telling you who I'm voting for. And that is going to come on Thursday. I'll go line by line and give you my opinions on it, give you the information on it, then let you make your own decisions because that's how this is supposed to work. And beside the ballot extravaganza, we have election night coverage. That's going to be coming up on Tuesday because, guys, it is a week away. We are seven days Seven days from election day, and it's both terrifying and also I'm, I'm kind of ready for it to be over, but I also know my ratings are going to take a hit once election day is over. But election night, we are having a live stream election night. There's a couple different things that we're looking at doing. We're either going to be communicating directly with the the Barrymore campaign because they're having a big party that at, um, th- th- they're going to be doing for election night. Uh, I am going to see if I can actually do a show on location. I don't know if the technology is going to allow us to do that. but Believe me, believe me, we are going to try. And if not, we're going to have just kind of a panel thing like we did with the debates here at the Tactic Studio. And by Tactic Studio, I, of course, mean my apartment. So (laughs) we'll try to do that. We will try to do that and see how it goes. We'll be doing election coverage for, of course, the big national elections. We'll be talking about what the election map looks for for President Donald Trump. We'll be, t- be telling you what the Senate looks like nationwide. But we will also be talking about the local races that mean a lot to you. We'll be covering very closely the Doug Jones-Tommy Tuberville race. We might actually be at the headquarters for Barry Moore and his re-election, or not re-election, his election bid. This is the first time he's gone for that particular office. So uh, we're going to be doing national coverage, sure, but we're going to be doing local coverage and be highlighting the things that matter to you. Now, on to the big news stories of the day. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but Judge Amy Coney Barrett has been confirmed to the Supreme Court which I could not be more ecstatic about. She is replacing a terrible terrible justice and I have great respect for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I also like didn't want any ill toward her she and Justice Scalia were best friends. And like him, the only thing I disliked about her, he once said that what's not to like except for her judicial philosophy. It's literally the only thing I dislike about her. I think that she actually was a pretty interesting person. I think that she probably, you know, led a a pretty interesting life and was a good person in her own right. She just had a horrible judicial philosophy. And so the fact that she has been replaced by somebody that by all indicators and everybody that I've talked to that knows about this stuff is an originalist, a textualist, and first and foremost, a constitutionalist that will actually take that oath of office that Supreme Court justices take when they get sworn in, by the way she did by Justice Clarence Thomas, which is also a very good sign that she chose Justice Thomas to swear her in, that um, when, when that takes place... When the oath of office is said that she actually takes it seriously and wants to defend the Constitution as it is, not as she would imagine it to be, that it's not about her personal preferences, it's about fidelity to the Constitution, which is what the standard should be for all justices, but unfortunately it's it's tended to not be. And so the fact that we have her on the Supreme Court is a really, really good sign she absolutely owned the confirmation hearings, and I just think that she might wind up being another Scalia, or even better, a another Justice Clarence Thomas, and here's the thing. I, I hate to say it, but this is just what I'm predicting, and I think that it is probably going to be correct. Guys, it, it just doesn't look like Donald Trump is going to be able to pull it out based on recent polling. And we'll talk about that a little bit more on the next episode. We're going to go over some other things here, and and I'll go into detail and explain that because I want to do it as close to the election as possible. And I think Thursday's a good day to do that. We'll have some more late polling to go over, and so we're going to do it all-in-one big go. But just looking at the polls, it doesn't look like Donald Trump is going to be able to pull this out. If that does take place, there is a very, very real chance... That it could be either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, depending on how long Joe Biden either lives or remains mentally competent, that he will be the one to replace Justice Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas is getting on up there, and I love Justice Thomas. I would hate to see the day that he is not on the high court anymore, but frankly, I was kind of baffled that he didn't pull a Justice Kennedy and just retire When Donald Trump was in office after seeing him nominate a Gorsuch and at least float the idea of Amy Coney Barrett, even though he wound up nominating Kavanaugh in the previous place, because thus far, this has been a at least something of a strong suit of President Trump. I mean, you look at Republican nominees of the past several decades, and it looks like he's got two really good ones and one that's all right. He has one that's at the very least a Roberts, a swing vote, and I think a lot of that probably had to do with that was a condition of Justice Kennedy retiring is to get somebody that was kind of in the middle for President Trump to nominate that there was probably a backroom deal going on there. So that being said, I'm kind of surprised that Justice Clarence Thomas didn't retire during Trump's first term of president. And I say this for the same reason that I was kind of shocked That Ruth Bader Ginsburg got cancer and continued, despite the fact that she had cancer, to push past her 80th birthday while Barack Obama was still president and didn't retire then. That that just kind of surprises me. I I really thought that she would have retired so that she would be replaced by somebody that is on the left. Now, I... You know, of course, I, I hate the fact that she died. I hate that she left the court that way. I would have a, a thousand times rather, and I would say this for any justice, in, including Justice Thomas, who was my favorite justice, that it it would have made sense to me for them to go ahead and retire and, and just ride off into the sunset and spend the last few years of their life with their family instead of clinging on to their Supreme Court seat. Now, of course, that's Justice Cl- uh, Clarence Thomas's prerogative if he wants to stay on the court. But, you know, Sam Alito's not a spring chicken either. And there's going to be several justices that are starting to get on up there. Kagan's got several good years left. Um, Sotomayor has several good years, years left, and, and they'll be probably liberal staples on the court for a very long time. Breyer's getting a little bit old, but, you know, he's not to the point of of Justice Thomas. And so Justice Thomas now being the senior most judge on the court, this is going to be a A monumental swing in the direction of the Supreme Court of the United States, the fact that there are I would say we have about a you know i I, I do parse my words slightly because i'm I'm trying to judge based on what we don't know, but we've got essentially four conservatives. Some more conservative than others, but you could reliably say that there are four conservatives. You've got now Amy Coney Barrett, who by all indications, we haven't seen an opinion from her yet, at least while she sits on the Supreme Court. We've seen some of her other opinions at the lower court levels, but probably ACB, the notorious ACB, is going to be a reliable conservative vote. You've got Justice Clarence Thomas. You've got Samuel Alito, who has been a very reliable conservative, not as conservative, not as originalist as Justice Thomas, but still reliably conservative and somebody who does see the Constitution in an originalist light. And then you've got Gorsuch, who decided on a really weird case to become a swing vote and just abandon originalism and start writing into the law what he wanted it to say. So that was disappointing. But every other opinion that I've seen of him has been fairly conservative. And so Gorsuch is at least most of the time a reliable conservative vote. He picked a really weird time to decide to be a swing vote, but nonetheless, and and I'm not going to relitigate all of that from that particular decision, but it seems as though he's going to be a very conservative justice overall. And then you've got two swing votes in Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, even though Kavanaugh, I would say, is slightly more conservative than Chief Justice Roberts. And then you've got three pretty reliable liberal votes in Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And so this this does dramatically alter the makeup of the court, and whether or not it's going to get shaken up again in the next few years with Justice Thomas, we'll just have to wait and see. But for right now... This is a court that could give us some very originalist rulings and, and help us make a return to the Constitution, at least in the the upcoming few years, that even if we do have a Joe Biden in the White House, I doubt that the Democrats take the Senate. They might make gains in the Senate, but I doubt that they're going to take the Senate. But either way, we'll have to wait and see on that. But even if there is a a split vote, a 50-50 Right down the middle, that it's 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, which would be a pain in the butt. It'd still be better than 51 Democrat votes, but if we do have a scenario like that where Democrats either take it or it could be a toss-up, depending on what day of the week it is, which, let's be honest, with Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who also voted against Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, let's be honest, it kind of is a toss-up already as to what's going to pass and what's not. But regardless, just looking at it from that standpoint, I really do think that it's more important now than ever to make sure that the Supreme Court acts as a bulwark, acts as a... As by the way, he did a masterful job the other day, Senator Mike Lee explaining why he was voting for Amy Coney Barrett, saying that it is the mass that we tie ourselves to lest we get called by the sirens and lose all of our senses and run after that which is our desire versus that which is actually good for us. And so the Constitution is the mass that keeps us tied to sanity, keeps us tied to reason and logic. So that, that was... By the way, very eloquent speech. Go back and look at Mike Lee's entire speech. It's like, I don't know, 15 minutes long, 10, 15 minutes long. Well, well worth your time. But that's really the the thing that Amy Coney Barrett could be for the court, and that is a very good thing. Now, on to some local news, because, of course, we do want to give local news as much time as possible. I did have to veer off into national news because, I mean, a Supreme Court justice being nominated, that's that's a massive news story. And we had to get to that first. And I understand that. And I understand that's what you would probably want is to talk about the big news story first, but we do have a lot of local news to get to. And one of them is really just based on everything that, uh, well, sorry, my, uh, my technology still isn't working. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but my technology still has just decided not to work. And so I'm kind of operating a little bit out of my comfort zone here, but there was a article that was put out by NPR about voting in Alabama, and you can see it here. So, and remember, this is, well, that's not right. Remember, this is NPR. So not only is this horrible liberal biased reporting, but it's horrible liberal biased reporting that you're paying for as a taxpayer. I know it makes you want to bang your head against the table, but this is the way that things go. So this is the headline from NPR Supreme court blocks curbside voting in Alabama, an option during pandemic. Okay. There's several reasons why the headline just on its surface is completely disingenuous that it's actually not correct at all. And the article itself, you can read through it and and tell that. And the longer you read, the more you can tell, okay, well, the story does not match the headline. But we'll get into that right now. So this is from NPR. The Supreme Court has sided with Alabama state officials who banned curbside voting intended to accommodate individuals with disabilities and those at risk from the COVID-19 virus. So right out of the gate, you saw the headline then the first line of this story. They're deceptive right out of the gate because the thing is, they didn't ban curbside voting. Curbside voting was never a law in the state of Alabama. See what they try to make you think by the way that they worded and the the way that they put it in the headline, they try to craft this image to the reader. They try to craft this image in in the reader's head that curbside voting was a thing in Alabama and to try to stiffen the vote. The Secretary of State, John Merrill and other officials in Alabama They tried to ban curbside voting, and then it went through the courts, and then it got to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court said, yep, we're going to uphold the ban. But that's not what happened. That's not even close to what happened. What happened is you had essentially uh, three or four activists that moved for... In the court system, they were saying that it is a violation of the Disabilities Act for them to not allow curbside voting. There has never been a law in the state of Alabama to allow for curbside voting. And then they took it to court, and then you had, and this was done very strategically, you had one specific activist judge in the state of Alabama that heard the case, ruled in their favor, it moved up to the federal court, it moved up to the Court of Appeals, and then eventually made it to the Supreme Court. Uh, But then the Supreme Court struck it down. They said this is not a part of Alabama law. And so it's not that they banned curbside voting. Curbside voting was never a thing. They tried to subvert the law in Alabama to get their way pushed through by the courts with something that has never been a law in Alabama. And then when it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court struck it down. That's what actually happened not this. And so they try to phrase it in such a way that that it crafts a completely disingenuous image in the head of the reader. They continue this deception as they go on. At issue was the decision by Alabama Secretary of State to ban counties from allowing curbside voting, even for those voters with disabilities and those for whom COVID-19 is disproportionately likely to to be fatal. So they start off right, right afterward. This is still very early in the article. They're trying to paint John Merrill, the secretary of state for Alabama, as the bad guy. They're trying to make the case and and trying to, again, drum up this image in your head that, oh, there's these horrible people in, in Alabama that are trying to stifle the vote and trying to keep people from voting. And the way that they're doing this is they're not allowing these accommodations for these poor disabled people. I'm pretty sure Alabama's had disabled people like the entire history of our state there have always i mean even way back in the very beginning when we became the 22nd state in the union way back then we had people with disabilities curbside voting was never a thing then it's never been a thing up until this point even though we've had people with disabilities voting the entirety of our state's history Now, the coronavirus is something that is more of an anomaly, but trying to shoehorn this in through the Disabilities Act is just ridiculous. Being afraid of catching a virus, especially one that has a 99.9% survival rate, or 998 depending on what demographic you're in, fear of getting a virus is not a thing that justifies You using the Disabilities Act to shoehorn it in. This was a massive legal and logical leap that they tried to take from the very beginning, and NPR is acting with shock and and appall that this did not take place. Look, if there's something that we could do to help make it easier for people with disabilities to vote, I'm okay with hearing that proposal but not in the 11th hour when we've got an election just a couple of weeks away. Now, of course, it's only a week away. This article was, was published last week, but you understand what I'm saying. Like, two weeks away, the Supreme Court's like, no, we're not going to completely uproot the laws of the state of Alabama and say that counties can just decide to do this weird curbside voting thing that's never been done in the state's history because people are afraid of the virus. But here's the other part of that. Even if you ignored all of that, even if you ignored the procedural part of it, the technicality, the legal explanation that I just gave you, they're also trying to cast John Merrill as this villain who doesn't care about people with disabilities that are at a higher risk. And they are, some of them, at a higher risk for catching the coronavirus. And, and, well, not at a higher risk for catching necessarily, but certainly at a higher risk at it being debilitating or fatal for them. So they try to cast him as this bad guy, but here's the thing. You may recall, if you've been watching this show for any amount of time, that we actually spoke to John Merrill a couple of months ago, way before this whole thing hit the fan. Way before this decision came down for the Supreme Court. It's been working its way through the courts for a little while now, but before this thing hit the Supreme Court, we had John Merrill come on the program to talk to us. And one of the things that he brought up is that under the Constitution of the state of Alabama, because how you do these things does matter, we have to do it in accordance to the Constitution of Alabama. Under the state's Constitution, the Secretary of State, which would be him, has the authority to justify adding in an excuse for not being able to vote in person. John Merrill, through no prodding, nobody trying to, you know, tell him that he has to do this. John Merrill decided on his own, you know what, I'm going to declare fear of getting coronavirus as an acceptable excuse for doing an absentee ballot. He didn't have to do that. There's absolutely nothing that would require him as the Secretary of State to do that. But he said, the governor's already declared an emergency. Ergo, I have this authority to do this. And I'm going to do it because I want to make it easier for people that are afraid of getting the virus to vote early. And not that I'm exactly an epidemiologist, but guys, which one do you think would be safer and make it less likely for you to catch a virus? Curbside voting or absentee voting where you never leave your house except maybe to go to the end of your block to throw a letter in there? voting absentee by mail. Which one do you think is more dangerous? Now, I don't think there's really much danger to either one of them, and I also don't think there's a whole lot of danger to going into a polling place and voting that way. However... Of the two, your absentee vote is obviously the safer option. And they're trying to treat John Merrill like he's some kind of ogre for not allowing them to do this curbside voting thing, which we do not have the infrastructure to do. It has never been done in Alabama's history, and we don't have time to completely retrain poll workers. We don't have time to try to completely manufacture this new system in the 11th hour in the blink of an eye, especially when election integrity is of the utmost importance right now. Do you really think that it's a good idea to, on D-Day, on, you know when it's crunch time and stuff's about to hit the fan, it is time for the election to take place that we add this whole other element that we're not prepared to do. Let's use a football example because those always work in the state of Alabama. Do you think it would be a good idea to on game day, you're getting ready every, you know, it's Saturday, everybody, the team's eating breakfast and you've got a, maybe an afternoon kickoff. And so it's like 10 AM and you go, all right guys, uh, yeah, so they just completely changed the rules on us, and uh, you know, th- this particular form of tackling is now not allowed anymore. I- is that fair? Is that a good idea that you have to completely change how the game is played? Uh, like let's say you change what counts as a tackle, what counts as down? That being on your knees doesn't count as a tackle. Your body has to actually be on the ground. So if somebody gets you down to a knee, that's not a tackle. You think that's fair to a couple of hours before a game starts to just completely change the rules and how the game is played? No, that would be absurd. And that's exactly what's going on here. The people won't be able to function. The poles won't be able to do what they're supposed to do if you add this completely new foreign element into it this late in the game. Now... If this were, you know, a couple of years ago where we can completely retrain all of our poll workers, okay, yeah, maybe we could integrate curbside voting then. Maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea. Maybe we would have plenty of time to accommodate for all this, but we simply don't have that time right now. And this is why John Merrill has said that they're not allowed to do that, and also why you've had the Supreme Court agree with him on that. Remember, like I said, he he unilaterally by himself, because it is a state of emergency power granted to the Secretary of State, allowed for absentee ballots to be a a valid excuse for getting an absentee ballot being, I just, I'm worried about the coronavirus. And so if he was really trying to stop everybody that was worried about the virus, if he was trying to suppress the vote, he's really doing a terrible job of it especially considering in his tenure in the Secretary of State's office that we've had more people registered and more people voting than ever before in our state's history. And I'm not just talking about population as a whole, I'm talking about a percentage of population as well, so that's adjusted for the population growth that our state experiences. And so if he's really out there trying to suppress the vote, he really kind of sucks at it. Anyway, this article continues on. Several at-risk voters challenged the ban in the beginning of May. After a three-day trial, a federal district court ruled that the ban on curbside voting violated the Americans with Disabilities Act and that a policy allowing but not requiring counties to implement curbside voting was a reasonable accommodation under law. A federal appeals court upheld that ruling and the state appealed to the Supreme Court to block the lower court's decision from going into effect. Now the high court has gained the state's request For a stay of the lower court orders. Yeah, that would be an overrule, not a ban. Just because a federal court decided that something was okay, and then it goes to the Supreme Court and they said, No, we don't agree with that ruling, that doesn't make it a ban. That makes it an overruling of the previous court's ruling. Again, this is something that has no origin in Alabama law. This is something that is surely a production of. A federal appeals court, well, a lower court than a federal court than, a, than an appeals court. That's all that this is. It is completely manufactured by them. It has no basis in the legislature. A bill never came before our Congress. It was never signed by the governor. None of that. This is something that is trying to be manufactured by the courts and they're calling it a ban even though it was never implemented in the first place. It's a really bizarre thing to do. The only possible motive is they're trying to paint John Merrill and trying to paint the state of Alabama in the worst possible light by calling it a ban, even though it's not a ban. And then this same article continues on. Writing for three, Sotomayor noted that John Merrill, the Alabama Secretary of State, quote, does not meaningfully dispute the plaintiffs have disabilities, that COVID-19 is disproportionately likely to be fatal to these plaintiffs, and that a tr- that traditional in-person voting will meaningfully increase the risk of exposure. What did any of that have to do with whether or not it's constitutional? Do you notice that Sotomayor, when she's writing this opinion, what were her three reasons? What are the three ones that she listed here? That John Merrill didn't dispute that the plaintiffs have disabilities. Well, no. That's a non-issue. They may very well be disabled. Doesn't really change his argument, which is, but it's not in the Constitution. They could be super disabled. I mean, they could be Stephen Hawking and can't move anything other than their eyes. Still wouldn't make a difference in this case. And then... Sotomayor also, her, her, third, her second reason there is that um. Uh, COVID-19 is disproportionately likely to be fatal to the plaintiffs. Again, maybe it is. Doesn't change the case. Also doesn't change the fact that they had the option of absentee voting because they were afraid of the virus, because John Merrill allowed that to be an excuse, even though he didn't have to, and he was not obligated to. He allowed that to be an excuse for them to go absentee voting. This is not about them getting a chance to vote. They already have that chance. This is about them getting their way to do this in a way that will gum up the system and make the election harder to count, and it will you know, create chaos in the polls. That's what they're actually going for. And then finally, that her, her third reason, Sotomayor's dissent, that a traditional in-person voting will meaningfully increase the risk of exposure. Well, again, it probably does. Like I said, of the three versions that I just gave you, absentee voting, curbside voting, and in-person voting, curbside voting is obviously the one that's the most dangerous. It's not super dangerous because the virus itself isn't super dangerous. But of those three, yes, it is the most dangerous, the one that is most likely to cause infection of the disease. So what? It doesn't change his argument one iota. If this thing were the freaking bubonic plague and it killed a third of the people that got it, and it was so transmissible that you could basically look at somebody from 10 yards away and get it, none of that would change this. None of that would change his argument. None of it would make it magically a part of Alabama's constitution. I'm sorry, Sotomayor. Facts don't care about your feelings. You may feel sorry for these plaintiffs. You may not like the fact that they can't do curbside voting, even though, again, they have the option of doing absentee. But you may not like the fact that they can't do curbside voting, But that is a question for Alabama's legislature. You as judges can't just magically make up a new system and impose it on a state just because you think that it's the way that it ought to be. None of this changes the fact maybe curbside voting is a good idea. I don't think that it personally is, but let's just say it's a good idea and it wouldn't cause any problems. That's still not an argument to implement it. That's still not an argument to say, well, it's in the Constitution and the Constitution of Alabama allows it. You're arguing against a case that nobody is making. Nobody's saying it's a bad idea. Well, I'm saying it's a bad idea. But it's not part of Alabama's legal system, and we don't have the infrastructure to put it in place. But even if we did, it's still not part of Alabama law. And no matter how you feel about it, it doesn't change that. So the fact that this is their only argument shows how weak their case actually is. That that Sotomayor, this was the best that she could do. But it does highlight a fundamental difference in liberals and constitutionalists. Liberals want the result, and they don't really care how they get there. They want the result, and the procedural part of that really just doesn't make a difference to them. They want what they want, and anything that keeps them from getting what they want is the bad guy. I've given this analogy before. To the left, especially when it comes to the judiciary, they're basically a two-year-old that wants a cookie. Because a two-year-old doesn't have ration. It doesn't ha- It doesn't have rationale. It doesn't have reason. You can't reason with a two-year-old that wants a cookie. All he knows is he wants the cookie. And in his mind, anything that keeps him from getting that cookie is evil. The procedure doesn't matter at all. Like, for example, you may be okay with your toddler having a cookie, but you don't like the fact that he used a chair and climbed up and put his hand in the cookie jar even though you told him not to. You may have been okay with him having a cookie if he had asked, But the procedure made a difference to you. The toddler doesn't care about any of that. All the toddler knows is that you're a very bad, mean person for keeping them from getting the thing that they want, which is a cookie. And so this is the fight that we're having. We're not arguing with adults here. These people have decided and just taken it upon themselves that, well, whatever I want is the right thing and I don't care how I get there as long as I feel bad for these people with disabilities and think they should be able to curbside vote, I don't care that it's not in the law. I don't care that there's no origin for it. I don't care that it's going to cause massive infrastructure problems and it would become a huge issue for being able to reliably count the vote in the state of Alabama. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want the cookie. And so the way that you do things actually does matter to a conservative. You know, maybe we could implement curbside voting but you would have to call in the legislator. You would have to make it an actual part of Alabama law. And you can't just do things like that here in the 11th hour. That's part of the system. That's part of the design. The reason things do take time, it has to happen slowly, is so the system can digest it and determine, okay, is this really a good idea? Is this something we want to make a permanent part of our law? Let's really take some time and look through this and, and see what, that's the reason that it has to go through the legislature. That's the reason it has to go through the House, the Senate, and then make it to the governor's desk. And in the state of Alabama, that would, I believe, require a constitutional amendment. Ask somebody that's more of an expert in Alabama law than me to whether or not it would. Uh, if that was the case, it would probably require a vote of the people because that would be a constitutional amendment in the state of Alabama. And so there are several different procedures that are stopgaps to keep bad ideas from getting through. Maybe it's a good idea but it has to go through the system. The courts can't just unilaterally decide amongst themselves, well, Alabama has to do this now. That's not the way this is supposed to work. But again, what I keep going back to is, wouldn't absentee voting just be significantly safer? If your primary concern is the safety of these people that are disabled, which by the way, is not a bad concern. I don't attribute ill motive to people for wanting people with disabilities to be able to vote more safely. But We have absentee voting, which would be significantly safer, and they just kind of ignore that, which leads me to believe that maybe they do have bad motives, because a better pathway, a safer pathway for these people has already been presented, it's already been afforded to them. And especially considering how long ago back in May that this whole thing started, they had way more than enough time to just apply for absentee voting this fall. They didn't want that. It's the same thing, for example, with the the lesbians and the, the gay men trying to get cakes made by custom cake bakers. Look, there's thousands of bakeries in the United States of America. And if you can't find a local baker that would do it, You can order online. We have the internet now. Have for a very long time. But no, they want that one specific baker that has a religious objection that doesn't want to bake the cake for them. They want that person to do it. Well, that leads you to believe that the motive isn't really the cake. The motive is they want to impose their will upon another person to make a political statement. Which this kind of reeks of. Honestly, that seems to be the actual motivation because a much safer version of voting for people with disabilities, the absentee voting, if they really are concerned about it, and you know, if you've got a comorbidity, you probably should be concerned about it. But if that's the case, vote absentee. These people had the opportunity to do that months ago. On this program, I said, if you've got concerns about it, vote absentee, even if you wind up voting for people that I don't like. That's fine. That's part of the process. But these people on the left just keep trying to impose their will, even though they have a much better option afforded to them. It doesn't make any sense. So, I tell my students this all the time. Just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that we have the ability to do it. For example, we, we do on-campus events all the time. And, and you know, you know it would be a really cool campus event? If we had President Trump come tomorrow and speak. Well, yeah, that'd be a good idea, but I kind of doubt we can get the president to just show up tomorrow on the spur of the moment on 24 hours notice. Yeah, that's a good idea. We just don't have the ability to pull it off. And so I don't necessarily think curbside voting is a good idea in the long term. I don't really see the necessity for it, especially when absentee voting exists. But let's just say it were a good idea. Just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that we should be doing it or that we have the ability to do it at this point. Now, several months down the road, that might be a fantastic idea. We might be able to work it out. But just because something is a good idea doesn't magically make us able to do it. And that's what Sotomayor is acting like. Whether she's trying to make the case, well, uh, these people really are disabled. Yeah. They really are at high risk for this. Yeah, they probably are. Accommodations have already been made for them. And even if there weren't, that still wouldn't be an argument for this being a part of Alabama's law. And the especially with this election with the integrity of the election and, and such high tensions, it's more important now than ever that we can trust it. And we don't throw curve balls to people working the polls and, you know, trying to muddy the water on this. And another thing too, this is really not so much a legal point. It's just kind of a, a thought rumbling around in my head. I'm not saying that there should be really high barriers to voting. I think that it should be easy to vote. I think that we shouldn't, you know, make it a a crazy difficult thing to vote. I understand that. I think that we should have fairly easy access to ballots. But at what point do we just say, okay, that's, that's going way too far? It's kind of the whole debate that we've been having with people just getting unsolicited ballots, so they just, a ballot shows up in their mailbox. With this curbside thing, shouldn't we treat voting in an election, shouldn't it have a slightly higher threshold than just on the spur of the moment you drive through there like you would at a Wendy's? I don't know. To me, again, I don't necessarily have a problem with, in theory, curbside voting sometime down the road where we have a lot of time to prepare for it. It goes through the system. We ask serious questions about what are the pros, what are the cons, Uh, would it be something we could feasibly do, Would would it be reasonable to do this? I could maybe be persuaded to be in favor of it on down the road when we have a lot of preparation and time to implement something like this. But I don't know. It just seems to me as though we should take voting a little bit more seriously than getting a number two combo from Jax. Like, there should be a slightly higher threshold of inconvenience you're willing to put up with if you're going to be serious enough to take this seriously, take your civic duty responsibly, and actually go through... Research the issues, and I realize most voters don't even do that, but actually research the issues, research the people that were, are going to be represented to you, that are going to be on the ballot. I, I just think that doing this, it does not speak well to the leftists in the country. that They want every random Neanderthal that's just hanging out in his parents' basement with a layer of Cheeto dust on his shirt That they want that guy to be able to vote with as little inconvenience to him as humanly possible. That he can just be wandering around and be like, oh yeah, that ballot that they sent to me. That I didn't even bother to ask for that just got sent to me because I'm a living human being in this country. Yeah, I'll go ahead and just fill that out right now and send it back in. Gives maybe two seconds worth of thought to it. The fact that that's the voting base that they covet, that they're going after, that they want to make it as easy as possible for the person that doesn't take it seriously to vote, I think that says a lot about what they think about their, their voting base, for one. And also about how deeply you have to think to be in favor of liberal policies as well, that they think that that guy who's basically been a freeloader his whole life, that that's their voting base, that that's the person that they want to they want to go after. But... Anyway, look, the left and the media are unreasonable toddlers. And I've said this over and over and over again. And they either want to cheat or they cry foul when you don't let them cheat. The the, the whole mail-in voting thing is just an offshoot of that thing. My my own little brother, Levi, when he was first learning to play board games, you know, I kind of let him cheat a little bit when he was real little. And then once he started getting a little bit older, not so much because I wanted him to sort of transition into being able to to play and and play on an even playing field, even though I was you know significantly older than him. Uh, he I, I, at a certain point I just stopped letting him cheat, and I stopped letting him win. And so, when that happened, him not being able to pick up the dice and and turn it into a turn a one into a six. In his mind, that was unfair that I wasn't letting him be unfair, and so his goal was either let me cheat or I'm going to say it's not fair that you're not letting me cheat and That's basically where the Democrats are now with voting and it is uh you know it's it's pretty sad that that's the best analogy that I can come up with is the argument of a three year old is the argument of the Democrat Party on voting right now, but that is not the only case of rampant media bias that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. So what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to take a quick break here and then we'll be back in just a minute here on tactics. Caleb here with another cookie review from insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies or insomniacookies.com. You can go to their physical locations if you happen to be in one of the Alabama cities where they are located. You can go to Mobile or Tuscaloosa or Auburn or Birmingham. Yes, it's sad. They don't have a physical location in Montgomery. They really need to open a store here, maybe in East Chase, I don't know. But either way, if you do happen to be in the capital city like me or Huntsville or one of the other cities that does not have an Insomnia Cookies, that is okay. You can go to insomniacookies.com. They will send you a fantastic box just like this, filled with all kinds of delicious goodness. You can order whichever cookie flavors you want. They've got tons of them. They've got white chocolate macadamia. They've got the peanut butter cup, which is my favorite. They've got your traditional chocolate chip, they've got all kinds of them, you know, the the fun ones, the goofy ones like M&M's and whatnot, but today we're going to be reviewing what looks to be some kind of double chocolate. So we've seen the traditional chocolate chip, I've done that review, but this one is a chocolate cookie with chocolate chips in it, and being a chocolate fiend, I'm really looking forward to this one, so let's go ahead and and try this latest flavor from insomniacookies.com. Oh wow! <laughs> Actually, got a little chocolate on my lip here. That's how much chocolate is in this. Is is when you bite into it, the chocolate like explodes out of it. The cookie part has a very fudgy flavor. It's not quite like the consistency of a brownie or anything like that, but it's 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 very chewy, very fudgy. And uh, I did do what the ins- people at Insomnia Cookies recommend, which is when you open one of these boxes, they'll have a little notice telling you how to heat up your cookies so you're eating it like it's hot. They say to pop it in the microwave for about 10 seconds. I find that about 20 seconds is actually better. But man, it does make a world of difference because when you bite into the cookie, especially with this real fudgy fudgy texture that the fudge cookie has, it just gives it sort of that, that warm fudge Texture which I think enhances it a lot. You've also got melted chocolate chips in it Really really good cookie one of the best ones that I've had So far I'd say this is definitely my top five cookie It it doesn't beat the peanut butter cup because it's gonna be really hard to beat the peanut butter cup I'm, just gonna be perfectly honest, but the brownie was really good This one's really good. It's hard to beat this Yeah, They do have brownies by the way That wasn't just me misspeaking So if you want all of this if you want to check out the the double chocolate cookie I just got to have another bite here oh that's good. Mm. Man that's a good cookie. And I know good cookies. If you do want one of these go to insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies.com. And welcome back everybody. Thank you so much for being with us and watching me stuff my face with delicious cookies from insomniacookies.com. By the way. Since I'm kind of in the advertising mood, I'm going to go ahead and give a free plug to an organization that actually just started here on Faulkner's campus. Now, many of you may know Turning Point USA. It's a conservative advocacy group primarily aimed at college campuses. Uh, They've got several really big names on the conservative side that have worked for them. For example, Candace Owen, she's actually not with them anymore. She's with Prager University, but... She got her start there at Turning Point USA, and so she's become kind of a conservative superstar uh, here in the the past few years, and and there's a lot of really great people that have worked with them. Glenn Beck has done work with them. Dennis Prager has done work with them with the Prager University videos, And, and you've got several different really big, big names on the conservative movement that have worked with Turning Point USA because it is important... With the liberals having basically a stranglehold on higher education to be able to get conservative ideas, conservative thought leaders, and conservative principles to at least have their voice heard on campus. You don't have to agree with them on everything, but considering that they've been largely just um, kind, kind of banished from college campuses you have to have a representation for conservative ideals and conservative principles on college campuses. And so they gave me these really cool buttons and I'm I'm going to be helping them here get started on Faulkner's campus. This one, American Socialism is an Oxymoron. I really like that one. Uh, let's see, this one with Bernie, what appears to be Bernie Sanders wearing an Antifa mask. Taxationist stuff, that's a really good one. I like that one. This one's cool because... Since it's October, it looks like a breast cancer awareness one, but all it says is big government sucks. And considering what, considering what big government and socialized medicine would do to research and advancements in cancer, and I say this as a cancer patient myself, that's wholly appropriate because big government would absolutely destroy this. And of course your old classic standby, Socialism Sucks. And so they've been passing these out. And if you have a conservative bin and you are at Faulkner University or you know somebody that does, please make sure to let them know about Turning Point USA here on campus. They've just started the club. You can get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with them if you want to. So that's Turning Point USA here on Faulkner's campus right in Montgomery, Alabama. So we're going to get into another case, yet another case of media bias here in the Yellowhammer State, right here in our own media, because the last story we did was about Alabama, but it was coming from NPR. We've got a couple more big stories this week that have come from out uh, from inside the state of Alabama. Kyle Whitmire over at al.com writes this for Alabama Media Group, and we'll go ahead and, and take a look at this. You can see right here this is the headline from AL.com, Jeff Sessions, I can't even repeat the headline, Jeff Sessions heck, essentially, on earth, and this is from AL.com. So before we even dive into the meat and potatoes of this article, you know that it's a disarticle, uh, it, it's a completely dishonest article right out of the gate. How do I know that? How do I know that this is going to be nothing but a baseless smear piece against Jeff Sessions? Jeff Sessions. Well, first of all, you can kind of tell from the headline, but you can also tell because of this picture, because this picture is of a little girl that has been separated from her parents. Except she hasn't. You may remember that back a couple of years ago, this was Time Magazine's. This was their literally their cover child. Their, this was the, the photo that graced the cover of Time Magazine, even though... It's a complete lie. That little girl has not been separated from her mother. It's that she and her mother, who did cross the border illegally, they had been going without food and water for about three days at this point to cross the border into America. And then they were caught by ICE agents. She was allowed to stay with her child. And then they had her put down her kid just for a second. And then the little girl started crying, which, you know... Totally understandable for a little kid that age who's just been through a horrible ordeal. And this is one thing that the liberal media never talks about, the, the incredibly difficult journey and the, the strain that these people do go through to get here to America before even entering the border and, and the kind of horrible things they have to deal with on that side of the border. And so they go through all of this. The little girl is tired. She's hungry. And so the mom puts her down just for a second, and she starts crying because the officer has to check her out there and make sure that the woman's not, like, wearing any weapons on or anything like that. And then, as soon as the officer is done, the mom picks her back up. She's never separated from her kid. Now, there are other parents that did have to be separated from her kids, but this particular one wasn't. And yet, still, because it's such a powerful image, this became the poster child. We've known this, it's been debunked for like two years now, and despite all of this, despite the picture there not being of a little girl that's separated from her parents, Kyle Whitmire is still going to use it as a picture about kids being separated from their parents. So you know it's dishonest right out of the gate because he's using this imagery even though he either knows or should know because he is a journalist after all not like me i'm just an opinion guy but he should know better than to openly lie about this stuff to openly deceive people so he either is doing it in ignorance and he just sucks at his job or he is using this picture intentionally knowing that it's a uh, th- that the picture does not depict what he claims it depicts Because he thinks it's more effective and he's just okay with lying to you about that. And this is where the opinion column starts by Kyle Whitmire. Maybe one day Jeff Sessions will answer to God for what he did, but in 2018, he had to answer to the Christian Broadcasting Network. By the way, not the same thing, just in case anyone was wondering. God, not Christian Broadcasting Network. Christian Broadcasting Network, not God. Just want to make that distinction clear for anybody that was wondering. In an interview then... The network's political analyst, David Brody, questioned the then-Attorney General on his department's policy of separating children of immigrant parents seeking asylum in America. Sessions told CBN that the family separations were never the Justice Department's intent. It has been a... It has been... Sorry. It hasn't been good, and the American people don't like the idea that we are separating families, Sessions said. Quote, We really don't intend to do that. What we intended to do was to was to make sure that adults who bring children into the country are charged with the crime that they have committed it takes some gall to go on a christian television network and to bear false witness because as it turns out what sessions said was a lie the two year a two year inquiry by the justice department's inspector general recently obtained the new york times by the new york times found that sessions not only understood that children would be taken from their parents at the border but that also that the, but the, he also ordered the department's prosecutors to do so as a deterrent to future refugees. Quote, We need to take away children, Sessions told prosecutors who objected to the policy, one of whom took notes of the meeting in May 2018. The report concluded that Sessions and other top Justice Department officials knew the policies would result in children being separated from their parents. Some of those children, the report said, were infants still young enough that they were nursing. Okay, first of all, before I completely destroy this argument, isn't it awfully convenient how the left only pretends to believe in God or care about what he thinks on issues where they think that God would be on their side? So basically, to them, God is just a bludgeon to whack their political opponents over the head with, but the second that they're engaged in a policy that God wouldn't approve of, oh, well, God doesn't matter, and and let's not bring God into the debate. So, when it comes to things like abortion, something that is clearly very much against the Bible, you shouldn't talk about abortion, get your religion out of my uterus. But then all of a sudden, when it comes to something that they think that God would actually be on their side, spoiler alert, there's no reason, and I say this as somebody who's studied the Bible his entire life, I'm a minister, Um, I say this as somebody who's read the Bible through several, several times, There's nothing in there that would suggest that what America is doing when it comes to illegal immigration is something that God would not be okay with. Now, would he be okay with neglect and abuse in any terms when it comes to criminal justice and criminal punishment? No, of course not. But what I'm talking about is the very concept and idea that Kyle Whitmire winds up going after in here that you should just not be arresting parents and they should not be separated from their kids There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. There were plenty of people in biblical times that did bad things and were separated from their children as a result of that. The child separation wasn't necessarily the intention or the goal. It was a happenstance of their punishment. But God himself separates parents from kids from time to time, and that happens to be a side effect of their punishment. But anyway, so, so, you know, we'll get that out of the way right here on the onset that it's hilarious to me that the left only pretends to care about what god thinks on the arguments that they think he might actually wind up siding with them the second that they don't think that god being in the conversation will help them no, no no let's let's go away from that let's not consider that it's it's wrong for you to even bring that up that tends to be the way that this goes unfortunately it's the a common uh, it's it's basically the modus operandi of the left so the second part of this though is what he just said was a lie wasn't necessarily a lie. I want you to hear the quote one more time that he's claiming was a lie on Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, Jeff Sessions says, It hasn't been good, and the American people don't like the idea that we're separating families. We never really intended to do that. What we intended to do was to make sure that adults who bring children into the country are charged with the crime that they have committed. So there's a couple different ways to read that, if you're looking at it from the onset of, well, Kyle Whitmer is saying, well, will see, but there's other records that say that he knew that they were doing that and that it should be used as a deterrent. But he's not saying that that is not the case in this quote. All he's saying in this quote is, well, that wasn't the goal. It's not like we're going through and we're just taking kids away from parents Uh, And and that's the end goal. That's what we want to do. But it can still be a side effect, in the same way that if you have an American citizen, somebody that's you know not in any way connected to illegal immigration, if you have somebody that's a legal legal citizen of the United States, and he is with his kid, and he goes and robs a gas station at gunpoint, and the police officers pick him up and arrest him, you know what's going to happen? He's going to be separated from his kid. And if he is incarcerated and sent to prison, he will be separated from his kid for a very, very long time. Now, did the officers seek separating that guy from his kid? Was that the goal of the police officers when they arrested him? No. Was it the goal of the prosecutors that helped prosecute his case and and make the case? Yes, this guy really did rob this gas station. Was that the prosecutor's goal, is to make sure that he couldn't see his kid? No. What about the judge? What about the jury? What about the prison guards? No, that was none of their intention. But as a happenstance of that person's decisions that they made, and as a happenstance of that person's punishment for breaking the law, that person is separated from their kids. That's the way it works. That's the way literally every incarceration throughout human history, just or unjust, every single one of them has separated that person from their family unless, of course, the entire family did something wrong and then they all got arrested at the same time. I mean, other than that weird scenario, if that's ever happened, every single incarceration and punishment for a crime in human history has resulted in the separation of a family. That's just the way that it works. It's not the goal. That's not what you're trying to do but it is an unfortunate side effect of the way that we have to punish people when they break laws and endanger the public. That's how this works. And so Jeff Sessions saying that, well, I know that people don't like the idea of separating families and that's not our intention, and also saying, but we do have to separate people and that will be a deterrent because, of course, you don't want to be separated from your kids, you don't want to be separated from your family and your loved ones, but that's what prison is. If you were... In prison, but all of your friends and relatives could come and go as they please, that's not a prison. That's house arrest. I mean, it would be a house arrest in a jail, but that wouldn't really be part of the punishment, would it? There's a reason that visits to prisoners aren't able to occur 24 hours a day. There's a reason your relatives can't just move into the jail with you and live with you. Because being separated from your family is a part of that punishment. That's not the goal but it does happen as a side effect of incarceration. And crossing the border illegally is no different. Yet you're going to be separated from your kids at the very least for a little while. And when that does happen, that should be something that should deter you from entering this country illegally. But that's the way that it goes. And so he's trying to attribute this so some kind of evil motive to Jeff Sessions that he maniacally was lying to people and saying, well, that's not my intention. And uh, behind closed doors, he's saying, you know what, we need to take those kids away from those people crossing the border. Well, yeah, that was a deterrent, but he wasn't doing it out of malice. These people broke the law. And so I I don't understand the claim that he's making that this is somehow a lie or that this is somehow dishonest. Yeah, family separation is regrettable, but it's something that has to happen for incarceration and it also ignores the fact that there have been a large number of people that are crossing the border with kids that those kids are not theirs. They're either coyotes or sex traffickers. Not every time there are some parents that really are crossing the border with their real biological children. I understand that. But there is also a very high volume of people that are doing it that are drug cartels and they're using the children as a shield and a cover story because they've been told that they go easier on you if you're a parent crossing the border as opposed to being a drug mule. There are people that go through and those kids are not their kids. They're kids that they kidnapped and they have now now engaged them in the sex trade. Unfortunately, this is a really, really big problem in the United States of America. We have a really bad child sex trafficking problem. And where do a lot of those kids come from? A lot of them come from Mexico. They're kidnapped in Mexico, snuck across the border, taken by coyotes. And then when they, cr- so just because you see an adult with a kid crossing the border does not mean that adult is that kid's parent. And that's part of the reason that they do separate them. And they try to sort all of that out before they reunite them. And so there, there's a number of different reasons why this policy is not the way that Kyle Whitmire is trying to cast it. And so let's go ahead and read the next part of this. More than 5,000 children were separated from their parents. Documents filed in a federal court have shown, and more recent court filings revealed that 545 of those separations could wind up being permanent. That's how many children whose parents our government now can't find. About 60 of those children are under the age of five. Or to put it another way, imagine you took a school about the size of an elementary school in my hometown and made all the students orphans. Sessions did that. It's so insanely ridiculous. He's saying that Sessions made these people orphans. Uh, well, can you account for all 545 of these cases? Because there's some of these kids that were orphans before they got here. They crossed the border as unaccompanied minors, or they crossed the border with people that were not their parents because they were kidnapped or because they were orphaned, and and because of that they were taken into, like I said, either be used as sex slaves or or a number of other things, and that's why they haven't been able to return them to their parents. There's also some of these kids that their biological parents are in Mexico, but they haven't been able to locate them, And, and part of the reason may be that they have abandoned their kids because they do not want... The kids, to, to they don't want America to find them because then they will send them back to Mexico and reunite them. Now, I have a great deal of sympathy for somebody whose home country sucks so bad and things they are so horrible with, you know, drug trade or whatever else it may be, that they deem that it is better for their kid to live apart from them in a country that is better for them and will give them better opportunity. Which, by the way, is a testament to how insanely good a country America is. But at the same time, that's not the government's fault or the parents that have come into the united states and got separated from their kids through one way or the other here's the thing do you really think that a parent that came here with their kids that that parent is just going to if it were your kid wouldn't you just be at the door of whatever building they were being held in like every single day trying to find where this kid was there's probably some of these kids that just have really crappy parents that straight up abandon them. This happens. This happens with legal families that it has nothing to do with legal immigration that occasionally parents just abandon their kids. And it's a horrible thing to do, but it's very realistic that at least some of these cases are that. I don't know how many, but there's a myriad of different reasons why that we may not be able to find that. And here's another thing to keep in mind as well when you're looking at the whole of American immigration policy, and we are far kinder to our illegal immigrants than any other country on earth. But when you're looking at the whole of American immigration policy, we've got what by best estimates, anywhere from 11 to 13 million illegal immigrants in the United States of America. And there's only 545 kids that are unaccounted for. That's a pretty small number. That's a relatively small number compared to 13 million. And so, of course, it's unfortunate. Of course, I wish that we could do better. And, and maybe there's even some procedural things we can do to make it better to where it's easier to find these kids' parents. I hope that there is a way to do that. But attributing this kind of motive to Jeff Sessions, that he was intentionally trying to make these kids into orphans by engaging in family separation, uh, if it's a crappy parent they probably were going to abandon their kid anyway. Or if it's a parent that just wants better things for their kid and sends them across the border by themselves as an unaccompanied minor, then okay, that, you know, I, I really feel for that family that they feel that way. But that's not the government's fault either. That if the the parent comes across and then gets deported and they try to reunite their kids with them, that they're like, you know what? I think the kid will be better in in America than coming back here, even though it means that they would be with me. Again, I, I genuinely feel for a family that's in that position. But that's not Jeff Sessions' fault. And Kyle Whitmire acting like it is is disgusting to call this guy, saying that he made 545 orphans and that laying all of that at Jeff Sessions' feet is just insane um but you know looking at all of these these different options uh you have to also keep in mind too that this is done primarily for the kids protection and you know let's do everything we can of course to be able to reunite these kids and by the way well over 90% of them have been reunited by Kyle Whitmire's own statistics that he cites here About 90% of them actually have already been reunited, so they're, you know, this idea that Jeff Sessions is intentionally creating orphans or something like that out of this. Well, 90% of them, he's he's failing on that on, and so there's a myriad of reasons why this is stupid. He continues on in this same article. Normally, I wouldn't bring Sessions' religious beliefs into an argument, but it was Sessions who did that, not me. In the wake of public outrage over family separations policies, Sessions quoted scripture in defense. Quote, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear, wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for that purpose of order, Sessions said in 2018. Quote, Orderly and lawful processes are good in and of themselves and protect the weak and lawful. Incidentally, but maybe not coincidentally, that's the same passage that slave owners used to convince their chattel to accept their bondage, and the Jim Crow-era preachers used it to rationalize segregation. <sighs> okay. Again, liberals trying to quote the Bible, it's, like a, it's usually like a toddler trying to explain nuclear physics. Like, they're so bad at it that it's almost laughable and adorable when they're trying to make some kind of biblical point because they're so ignorant of the scriptures they don't even know where to start. So, <laughs> Kyle Whitmire trying to debunk this, do you think that once a bad person completely misapplies scripture, that from that point on that scripture is toxic and nobody can use it, and incorrectly, e- even correctly applying that passage to any position at any point later in history is now null and void. For example, if you were to look at Romans twelve twenty, that was a passage that, granted it makes no sense, but that was a passage that the Ku Klux Klan tried to use to justify cross burnings. So what it talks about there is loving your enemy and doing so will cat- heap coals of fire on their head. Now the Ku Klux Klan is badly misapplying this because first of all it says nothing about a burning cross in that particular passage and the burning coals is a reference actually to a proverb that Paul is quoting from back when Solomon was writing scripture where it talks about loving your enemy and being good to them that curse you and and doing so will enrage them because if they have bad motives, if they're a bad person, that it'll infuriate them and it will burn them up inside that there is somebody that is being nice to them despite the fact that they're being nasty to you. Now, that's not the goal, but it is a pearl of wisdom that Solomon shares. Then Paul quotes it again in, Romans, uh, in, in there in Romans 12. But the funny thing about that is, if we're going by Kyle Whitmire's standard. Then nobody can ever use that verse in Romans 12 where it talks about being good to your enemies and loving them and feeding your enemy if he's hungry. Uh, if you ever do that or if you ever apply that scripture ever again to any situation, then I guess you just must be a clan member because the clan used to use that scripture, right? So if you feed your enemy when he's hungry or you give him water when he's thirsty, you're a clan member. Well, if we're going by Kyle Whitmire's standard, That's what it means, because what Jeff Sessions just did is accurately and correctly apply Romans 13 and say, well, you know, that's what slave owners used to do. And that's what Jim Crow-era preachers used to do. Yeah, they did. But they were misapplying the scripture and using it wrong. Jeff Sessions is using it correctly. Now if you want to go back and forth with me on that and as to whether or not this was a correct application of the scripture, then yeah, by all means, come at me, bro. I'll have that discussion all day. But the point is, Whitmire's ridiculously bad biblical logic here that just says, well, Jeff Sessions is using a verse that bad people used to use incorrectly, therefore, he must be a bad person too. How did how does somebody even reach that conclusion? I don't get, like, even if you don't know anything about Scripture, in what universe does that make any sense? And furthermore, like I said, Sessions is actually using Romans 13 in the correct sense here. He's saying that if something is illegal and it's not something that violates God's law, which would be the only exception that is given in Romans, uh, and also by example in Acts 4 and and several other places in the Scripture, that you should be abiding by the laws and that it would be morally incorrect. It would actually be going against God's will to knowingly violate a law like crossing the border when you know you're not supposed to. It would be against God's will to violate a law like, you know, stealing from people on your taxes. Believe me, I don't like taxes. I would rather pay significantly less than them But I believe that God's word does teach you to respect the authority of people in positions of power and respect the government's authority because that is something ordained to them. You can't just ignore the ones that you don't like, and so somebody may not like the law about not crossing the border. That doesn't justify them violating the rule of the government and God's rule that says you're supposed to respect people in authority. Sessions is using that passage correctly there. And so Whitmire's obvious biblical illiteracy there just kind of shines through. But ultimately, the thing to remember about all this, Whitmire is just casting stones. And I think that it really is, even though the the chief claim in this whole article is completely ridiculous, that because you remember the whole thing is that he was lying. The only way that you can get to that level of of thinking that, that that was a lie, is you have to automatically, before you ever look at the quote or look at the facts itself, you have to assume that that person is a monster. You have to assume that there is all kinds of evil motivation undergirding all of that. And the thing is, this is really the most subtle form of media bias. You see, you can kind of see it in the whole Trump versus Biden thing. Because when Trump says something, normally people in the media, whether it's a press gaggle or whether it's like at his town hall or something like that, the, immediate, assumption, the um, immediate media assumption is that he's lying. They go into it with a thought of hostility that if he's saying something, especially if it's something that they do not like, well, he must be lying. He must be re- misrepresenting that. Now, when it's Joe Biden, normally they phrase it in the way that they're wanting him to answer a criticism when they ask him a tough question. They do the same thing with Kamala Harris or other liberals as well. They'll go in and basically say, you know, Joe, Republicans are lobbying this accusation against you, and we know, you know, we know that it's completely baseless and it's not right, and you're not really flip-flopping on that, so help us understand how you're right. You see the difference in approach? Both of them may still be addressing something that has, you know, someone else has attacked them for, but there is an assumption that Democrats are the good guys and there's assumption that Republicans are horrible, evil monsters that want to rip children that are nursing out of the hands of their mothers so that they can never see them again because of the, you know, because they crossed the border. Well, that was not Jeff Sessions' intention. It may have happened And it may have happened as a result of enforcing laws in America. But that was not the intention, and they have actually tried very diligently to reunite them. But as a matter of the kids' own safety, they have to separate them at least for a while. And by the way, this policy was going on under the Obama administration and was for several years before anybody on the left thought it was a problem. I remember back in 2014 that you had people like Glenn Beck and other conservatives actually go to the border and donate things like soccer balls and teddy bears and, and food to try to help you know when we had that really, really big surge in 2012. Uh that actually happened and, and I was involved in that. Let's see, was that surge in 2014 or 2012? I forget the year. It fact checked me on that one, because frankly I, I'm you know, it's I've slept since then, so <laughs> Be sure to fact check me on that, but my point in all of that is, th- they want to assume that everybody that is on the opposite side of the political aisle is some kind of heartless, evil, racist monster, and so they create this imaginary boogeyman, and then that role, mold is just, or that that role is just filled by every person that has an R behind their name that comes into view or is in charge of some kind of policy, and so that's what Whitmire really fell into there is that his, his? he already assumed before he looked into any of this that Jeff Sessions is a horrible, evil, racist monster. And so anything that he saw that he perceived as an inconsistency, he wasn't looking at the facts and trying to see, okay, is there another explanation for why he was saying that other than he was intentionally doing this? Or maybe that this was just a, a side effect of enforcing the policy and enforcing the laws of the United States uh, as they are written? Or is it just that Jeff Sessions is a horrible, evil person? You see, he wanted to believe that one, and he went into it believing that, and that's why what you see is the kind of media spin that is the result. I mean, yeah, the media spin has multiple different facets and political interests going into it, but when you boil it all down to its bare-bone basics... That's really what it all boils down to. That's really what what is at the center of all of that is they just assume that all Republicans are bad and have bad motives and all Democrats are good and have good intention even when their policies screw up. And that really is the difference. So let's go ahead and go to... Sorry, I almost... My technology still isn't wanting to work with me for whatever reason, but hopefully we can get all this uh, squared away. Um, Let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. No, you messed it up. (laughs) You're stupid. Today's Daily Dose of Stupid is yet another article from right here in the state of Alabama. This one comes from Josh Moon. Now, I don't like Kyle Whitmire. I think I made that pretty clear in the, the previous segment. But Kyle Whitmire does occasionally come up with a really good article. And I've praised him multiple times on the show before. Sometimes he does really good work. I really can't think of anything I can compliment Josh Moon on. So if we were to compare the two, Kyle Whitmire is, I don't know, I guess kind of like the Wolf Blitzer, who most of the time is an insufferable leftist, but occasionally comes up with something really good. Or or maybe Bill Maher. Bill Maher is actually better for that. Because, uh, you know, Bill Maher will occasionally be the voice of reason in the room, even though most of the time I wind up disagreeing with about 88% I don't know why I pulled that number out of nowhere, but I wind up disagreeing with him way more than I wind up agreeing with him, but occasionally he is the voice of reason and occasionally he does really good investigative work. I really can't think of an occasion or a statement or anything to compliment Josh Moon on. I mean, he's just absolutely horrible on it. He's the Brian Stelter of this analogy or the uh, the Don Lemon. So let's go ahead and, and you can check this out. Uh, let's see if we can go ahead and pull this up. Again, I apologize. My technology has just been not cooperating with me uh, really for a couple of weeks now, and that's the reason we've had such an issue getting shows going. Come on, let's get... There we go. So this is his headline from Alabama political reporter. Opinion, electing Tuberville could cost Alabama billions. Now, it's interesting because the last one we looked at, actually the last two stories we've looked at, the headline was absolutely horrible, and when you dug into the meat of the... The article was still bad, but not as bad as the headline might have suggested. This one's the opposite. Looking at the headline, the headline's actually pretty benign, and I would even argue somewhat accurate. The piece itself is just hot garbage, and I'll show you what I mean right here. Money matters in Alabama, writes Josh Moon. Oh, I know we're not supposed to say it out loud that we're supposed to promote an image of Southern grace and hospitality, of churchiness and care, of rich people never getting into heaven. But the truth is, greed is our biggest character flaw in this state. Every problem we have can be traced back to our unending thirst for dollars. I don't know how you would make that case. I mean, literally every place in the entire world has problems, and some of them surely could be traced back to greed, but I don't think you could say every single one of them would be anyway our ancestors didn't keep slaves because they hated black people they did it because they loved money and the difference in skin color gave them an excuse a really really stupid excuse to mistreat other humans and take advantage of free labor um you know there might be some truth to that i think it certainly was more of an economic motivation than it was racial racial just kind of coincided with it in fact there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the vast majority of the animosity towards black people really more cropped up around the time of the civil rights union or the the civil rights movement even more so than slavery. And I won't get into all that because that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but Josh Moon actually does make a decent point here, even though he's doing it in the most condescending way imaginable. And then he continues on, Our rivers and lakes and dirt aren't filled with poisons from factories because we're too dumb to understand how this works. They're that way because our politicians are paid off to turn a blind eye to the dumping of toxic waste. Our schools aren't terrible because we have dumb kids or bad teachers. It's because we're too cheap to pay for them. You see what I mean? It's our lust for money and the almighty dollar. Every time. We love money. Okay, so a couple of things. First of all there might be some politicians that are paid to take a blind eye, but in the general, that's simply not the case. Alabama is one of the most beautiful states in the country. And I'm not just saying that because our slogan happens to be Alabama the Beautiful. Generally speaking, we have pretty clean air and water. And the idea that, you know, we just have that we're living in... Uh, dude, go to L.A., go to Hong Kong, go to New York. Bastions of Democrat and liberal thinking far more polluted than the state of Alabama. So I don't really understand the point that you're trying to make there. Because the thrust of this is, well, it's a bunch of evil, heartless, greedy Republicans that just care about money and are getting paid off and they don't wanna bother with the environment and that's why our, our, we have such bad pollution. Well, first of all, we don't have pollution that's all that bad or all that out of the norm. And if you were to compare our pollution to a place like New York or like Los Angeles or like, you know, other countries, Tokyo, Hong Kong, you know, pick pick, uh, whichever one of those you would like. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that there's a bunch of Republicans there because there's not. It has a lot more to do with the fact that, you know, I mean, if, if that is your big plea, I guess is the way to say this then you're going to have to come up with some kind of control group because this one ain't doing it for you. And then he goes on to say, you know, something about the schools or whatever. But here's the thing. We spend significantly more money per student than most countries. And yet you look at places like Finland that is spending less money than us per student and getting significantly better results. Our issue is not money in the schools. And it never has been. The issue, at least for the past several years my entire lifetime has been a lack of discipline and the ability to discipline kids in schools something that josh moon emphatically rejects even when talking to someone who's a 27 year veteran of the public school system in the case of my own dad who had this conversation with him on the radio a few years ago to him it's always we got to throw more money at it even though there are other places spending way less money than us that are doing better that doesn't make any sense if money were the issue, that would not be the case. But anyway, what this all culminates in? Look, wanting you and your government to have not have money stolen from you does not make you greedy. He tries to make this case that because Alabamians do genuinely want fewer taxes and less government regulation, that that somehow makes us greedy. No, wanting to keep more of your own money does not necessarily make you greedy. But that's especially true. Like, it would be one thing if you were making the case that you're a super rich person and you won't buy a sandwich for a homeless guy. Okay, maybe you could make the case that that person wanting to keep his money is greedy. But not wanting the government to come pilfer it from you, take it from you by force at gunpoint, that's not greedy. That's just wanting to not be mugged. That's That's what that boils down to. And so... I don't understand this line of thinking, first of all, but just because I don't want to fund every boneheaded liberal policy that Josh Moon would be in favor of does not mean that I am greedy. I do give to the poor, I do give to charity, and guess what? Turns out that conservatives, on average, give way more to charity in both money and time than liberals do. There have been several studies of this done over the past several decades, and they always come up the same way, that people that have conservative values, primarily because they're more religious, tend to do more for other people than people that are liberals because in their mind, ah, the government will take care of it. Here's the difference in conservative and liberal thinking. This is the whole difference in our worldview in a nutshell. When a conservative person comes across a person that is in need, he says, hmm, I need to help that person. When a liberal person comes across somebody that is in need, they say, what an injustice. Look at all these rich people around me. Somebody should be helping this guy. See, it's never about them. They want someone else, the system, the government, a politician, they want someone else to take care of them. They just don't want to do it. And so this is the problem with this line of thinking. Now, Josh Moon may give to charity. I really have no idea. He may do work like that. I don't know, and I don't pretend to know. But as a general rule, that is the difference in the two worldviews, that conservatives help see a need and want to fill it. Liberals want someone else to fill it at gunpoint. That's how they, that, that's the difference in the two worldviews. But even if all of this were true, even if every word that Josh Moon has uttered in this piece so far were 100% accurate, you know what? It's still a really, really bad tactic to go into a a plea to for people to do something for you by saying, you guys are all a bunch of evil, greedy morons. That's a really dumb opening line when you're trying to talk somebody into doing something. Because what he's trying to do here, and we'll see this in a second, is he's saying you should vote for Doug Jones and not Tommy Tuberville. And then he goes into it and say, you know what, you're all a bunch of evil, greedy morons that care more about money than you do about kids and keeping people safe and healthy. You're not really ingratiating yourself to the crowd by doing that, Josh Moon. And another thing, and I don't mean that... I'll clarify. I don't mean this in the like, well, if you don't like it here, you can leave. I don't mean this to be in any way an encouragement for Josh Moon to leave the state, frankly, because I love occasionally reading some of the idiotic things that he says. So I kind of want him to stay, to be perfectly honest. But... As a general question, and I'm not doing this rhetorically. I really am asking Josh Moon, if you really do think that Alabama is some kind of evil popu- uh, some kind of evil polluted cesspool with nothing but a bunch of knuckle grabbing wow, I can't talk today. With a bunch of knuckle dragging rubes that care more about money than they do about children, why do you still live here? Because here's the thing. I really hate the policies and the world view of people in California which is why I don't live in California. I really don't like the policies and worldview of New York, which is why I don't live in New York. If I did, I would consider moving to a place that more accurately reflected my viewpoints and my thoughts and my values. So I'm genuinely asking Josh Moon, if you hate this state so much, why are you still here? Either there's some inkling of you that knows that Alabama not nearly as bad as you try to make it out like it is, Or, I don't know, you just have some kind of weird masochistic self-hatred that you are punishing yourself by living here? I I don't understand the rationale here. But anyway, he continues on in the same article. Which makes me seriously wonder why so many people in this state are going to vote for a man who will cost us all, and especially our biggest businesses, so much of it. Talking about money here. Tommy Tuberville will be uh, will will be a light again can't talk today don't know why Tommy Tuberville will be like a money vacuum for Alabama billions of dollars will vanish for this welfare state that relies so much on federal contracts federal programs and federal dollars if you doubt this don't simply take my word for it just google up the press release from Senator Richard Shelby's office from the last say 6 years the most recent span in which republicans have controlled the senate almost every single release is about shelby securing millions or billions of dollars in federal funding for this project for this project or that project getting the state share of dollars from a variety of different programs and initiatives implemented by congress so one thing that i have to get out of the way that first statement which makes me seriously wonder why so many people in the state are going to vote for a man which will cost all of us especially big business, so much of it, talking about money again, maybe it's because their motives aren't nearly as evil as you attribute. See, he's assuming that everybody in Alabama, he starts out with this premise and lays out his very weak and frankly unsubstantiated case for this, that the only thing people in Alabama actually care about is money, so why are you all going to vote for uh, somebody that will cost you money? Maybe because money is really not the thing that they value. That may be your perception, and you may genuinely desire to want to believe that everybody in Alabama because they tend to vote Republican are a bunch of evil, greedy, hateful people. But then you see this and you're like, well, then why aren't they voting for the person that will give them more money? Maybe because that's really not our motivation. Maybe because you have attributed the wrong motive to people in Alabama. And then he goes into the second part of this, which is he makes the case that Richard Shelby, and by the way, Josh Moon is 100% correct in this, is the king of pork barrel spending. And he is. If there is ever a guy that you need to somehow siphon money off of the federal government and get it to where you want it to go, Richard Shelby is your guy. Which, by the way, to a conservative, is by far the worst thing about Richard Shelby. And so he tries to do this weird thing. And this is why this is in the Daily Dose of Stupid, because it's one of the dumbest things that I've ever seen. Josh Moon tries desperately to get conservatives to vote for Doug Jones, because that will line their pockets, according to him. And then he reminds us of, hey, the reason you guys like Richard Shelby so much is because he brings in a lot of federal dollars. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Yeah, we actually hate that. That's the reason that conservatives have been primarying Richard Shelby as often as humanly possible. There's a reason that I did not vote for Richard Shelby in the primary, and this is the reason. Because the guy is the king of pork barrel spending, and I don't want him to be. And so you're literally arguing against me voting for Doug Jones. Only Josh Moon could pen an article so profoundly stupid in every conceivable way that he actually winds up making me somebody that has a very winnable vote, not for Doug Jones, but at least against Tommy Tuberville, and did not pull for Tuberville. He was like my fourth or fifth option. i He was way down on my list of people I wanted to be the senator. Only he could write an article starting out with the premise to somebody that is a conservative like me that doesn't really like Tuberville, or uh, I don't dislike him, but he's certainly not high on my list, and I don't think he's a real conservative somebody that has something of a winnable vote and actually push me further into the Tommy Tuberville camp because he makes the point that Tommy Tuberville won't even be able to do this because he's not been there for a hundred years. Oh, that's a good point. I actually really like that about Tommy Tuberville. You've actually ingratiated me even more to the Tommy Tuberville side. Good job, Josh Moon. It's because he completely doesn't understand his audience. He would assume that because I'm a conservative, that I don't really have values. That's just a shell. That is a ruse that I put out to people because what I really like is money. Which, uh, if you know anything about me, not really a big concern of mine. If I really cared about money, I wouldn't have gone into media. If anybody should understand this, it would be Josh Moon. Conservatives, do like money, just like everybody else, but it's not our primary value. You don't become a conservative because you love money and think that you should be rich. In fact, rich people tend to be less conservative. Most of your conservatives tend to be in the lower income brackets, especially recently. And so he gets the whole thing completely wrong. And another thing too, that Josh Moon is, what he's really doing here is he's doing epic levels of projection. Because the only thing that Josh Moon does like about Richard Shelby, because he's a big fan of big government, is that Richard Shelby votes for a lot of taxation, a lot of spending, and he brings a lot of that money back to Alabama. That's like the one thing about Richard Shelby that Josh Moon actually does like. And so because of that, he thinks that he can ingratiate people to vote for Doug Jones, because Doug Jones also does that, and these conservatives, they must really like Richard Shelby, and that's the only thing I like about Richard Shelby. And so, that's what I'll play off of. It's incredibly stupid. Conservatives hate that about Richard Shelby and always have. None of us like that about Shelby. That's why the conservatives voted for other people in the primary. And so, he really just has absolutely no idea what the crap that he's, he's doing here. He continues on in the same article. But what's worse for Tuberville, and for Alabama, is that other Republicans don't like him either. Establishment Republicans essentially openly campaigned against Tuberville in the primary, tossing tens of millions of dollars behind his opponent, Jeff Sessions. They even favored third-place finisher Bradley Byrne over Tuberville. Yeah, that's the reason Tuberville won, you moron! Look, I didn't really like Tuberville. And to me, again, the whole establishment thing... That doesn't really matter to me one way or the other, but the most popular thing about Tuberville, like the one thing that he had going for them that appealed to Alabama voters, is that he was an outsider. Bradley Byrne is already in politics. Jeff Sessions is already in politics. Arnold Mooney is already in politics, and nobody knows who he is. I'm sorry, Arnold. It's the truth. But (laughs) no offense to Arnold Mooney. I actually like him, but, you know, he had no chance of winning that election because nobody knows who he is. But my point in all of that is Tommy Tuberville is the candidate now because he was an outsider and somehow Josh Moon is trying to cast this as a bad thing and saying, yeah, all you people that voted for Tommy Tuberville, you should not vote for him. You know why? Because establishment Republicans don't like him. Yeah, we don't like establishment Republicans. You know, I may not be the biggest Tuberville fan, but that is something that is a draw. The fact that he does come from the outside, the fact that he is not somebody that, you know, is an inside player, when it comes to politics, which will also mean that he'll be able to get less spending for Alabama, which again, is another thing I like about Tuberville. Everything that Josh Moon tries to point to, to say, this is why you shouldn't vote for Tuberville, makes me want to vote for him more. And so it is really hilarious that he has such a fundamental misunderstanding of the people of Alabama, despite having been here for a very long time. And this is probably the best part of the whole thing. Seriously, this is an article. Remember that Josh Moon is writing trying to convince people in Alabama to vote for Doug Jones. And this is his big pl- this is his big play. This is his finisher. This is at the end of the article. It's like, this is where I'm going to close the deal and make sure these people walk away knowing they've got to vote for Doug Jones and not Tommy Tuberville. In the meantime, Jones is highly respected by senators on both sides of the aisle. He already has a presence in top committees and is well-liked within the Democrat Party that he's, and is so liked by the Democrat Party that he's on the short list as Joe Biden's AG should he not be reelected? I don't know what to tell you, Josh Moon. I really don't. You're so dumb that you think the way that you can get people in Alabama, the reddest state in the country, and the one where Tr- Donald Trump enjoys his highest approval rating out of all 50 states, your big play to get them to vote for Jones is, you know what, guys? Joe Biden loves Doug Jones. What kind of moron are you? I mean, that's like going into downtown Jerusalem and trying to get, I don't know, the mayor of Jerusalem elected and go, guys, guys, you know when you got to vote for this guy? Hitler loves him. Like, Hitler really likes this guy, and I think you should vote for him. You're in Jerusalem, you moron. I don't understand the rationale here. I'm in the red estate in the country. What can I say that might make people vote for Doug Jones? Oh, yeah, Joe Biden loves him. And you know who else loves him? Democrats. Democrats love this guy. So you should really vote for him, right? Right, guys, anybody, crickets. What kind of acid was Josh Moon on when he wrote this? And then he, he finishes out here. The choice seems to be pretty simple. On the one hand is a competent, prepared and serious statesman who knows how to maneuver his colleagues to get the most for the state. On the other hand is an unprepared, uncaring, lazy carpetbagger who doesn't understand any of the process. If your conscience or decency isn't enough, vote your wallets." So basically this entire article, and we've gone from the beginning to the end here, is people in Alabama, you're all a bunch of evil, money-grubbing hypocrites. And so because of that, I'm going to appeal to the the worst part of your soul, the most evil, greedy, self-serving part of you, and saying, you know what, you need to vote for Doug Jones because he's going to be the one that fulfills all your desires. Yeah, what does that say about your candidate? If you believe that to be the case, then what does that say about your guy? That... All these evil, horrible, greedy people should vote for him. Isn't that kind of a slam against the candidate that you like? I don't think that Tommy Tuberville is some kind of principled conservative. I don't think that he's a fantastic candidate. Like I said, he was probably my least favorite out of the Republican field. But you're trying to make the case that Doug Jones is going to basically do the wish fulfillment for a bunch of evil, hateful, ignorant people? Why would I want to vote for somebody that you think that about? I genuinely don't understand that. Um, Basically, this is the whole argument that Josh Moon makes here. You're all a bunch of evil, horrible, backwater, country-fried rubes And so because of that, since you only care about yourselves and only vote for yourselves, you don't have any real values and you don't really care about things like protecting the unborn. You don't really care about things like the Second Amendment. You don't really care about things like free speech and freedom of religion. You don't really care about that. And I know that about you. I know that you're all a bunch of evil, greedy people. And so my appeal to you is to vote for the guy that is going to be the best for you evil, greedy people. It's such a weird appeal here, and I really do not understand it. Um, But his assumption, again, because he attributes malice to everybody that disagrees with him, just like Kyle Whitmire did in the last article, his assumption is, you people don't really have any values. You don't really care about anything. See, everything that you claim is a value. Everything that you claim is important to you, like, you know, not murdering children... The only reason that you really believe that is because you hate women. The only reason you really believe in things like freedom of religion is because you hate gay people. The only reason that you claim to believe in things like free speech is because you want to be able to walk around calling black people the N-word. No, none of that's true. We can believe that there is a right and wrong and also hold to values of freedom and liberty. This is something that Josh Moon does not understand. And so because of that and because he is the kind of person that would just vote for whatever self-serving interest to, as, to someone who just does basically wish fulfillments of whatever he wants, then he thinks that that's what would appeal to everybody else. Ultimately, what it goes down to is only Moon could be this dumb. Only Moon could go into this article trying to convince people to vote for Doug Jones and every single point that he makes only makes me want to vote for Toberville more. Or... He knows that none of that stuff is going to work, that none of it is going to convince anybody to vote for Doug Jones, and all he's doing is writing a self-serving article that appeals to him and his base. Those are really the only two options. But considering it's Josh Moon, I really just think he's that dumb. And frankly, it's better to attribute ignorance, incompetence, or stupidity over malice. And... I could kind of see myself going either way on that, depending on what the situation is. But in this particular situation, I think Josh Moon just isn't all, he's just so disconnected and disjointed and has such a fundamental lack of understanding in this particular area that he thinks that something like this might actually convince somebody to vote for Doug Jones. That's just how I read it. Maybe I'm incorrect on that one. I don't know. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. (laughs) Chaplain's report today comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be continuing our series there. Now, remember that we just finished, if you were watching the last chaplain's report, a passage of scripture that starts out in 1 Samuel 18, talking about the closeness between David and the royal family. David's becomes kind of a national icon at this point. He is the giant slayer. He's already been with Saul before, and his heart playing has sort of soothe the turmoil inside his own soul. And so David's in pretty tight with the royal family at this point. He's Jonathan's best friend to the point that they have actually made a covenant with one another, that they're going to treat each other like brothers. And then Saul is treating him like his son, so much to the point that he has specifically asked David's father, Jesse, if David could just live with him in the palace for a while. And David is going on missions for Saul. He is doing all these things in Saul's place. And and basically, Saul is treating him like David is his own son. He's like a member of the family at this point. And that brings us to the point that we're about to look at now. And it's very important to remember that that was the last thing that we saw because it really does show what a quick turnaround can happen when you have sin in your life and sin in your heart. Let's go ahead and look at 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. Now it happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with other musical instruments. Then the women the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this lyric displeased him. And he said, They have given David credit for ten thousands, but to me they have given credit for only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day on. You know, this is one of the in my opinion one of the saddest passages in the entire Old Testament. And I think that it is that way because Saul could have had somebody that was an ally and a lifelong friend. And he chose to go a completely different direction because of a couple of things. First of all, envy. You know what the difference in envy and jealousy is? I think we've talked about this on the chaplain's report a couple times before. Envy is not wanting somebody else to have something, just out of spite. So, for example, if you're jealous of somebody, that means you want a thing that they have. But if you're envious of somebody, then you may want the thing that they have, or you may not want the thing that they have, but regardless, you want them to not have it just because you hate the fact that they have it. That's what envy is. And so, Saul is is looking at this, and I think there is an aspect of jealousy for sure. He wants the same praise that they are heaping on to David. But the reason that I think that this goes deeper, and I think that this is envy, first of all, you have to remember that David is Saul's servant. He has done all these things. He has slain all these Philistines. He has gone out to battle. He has led these missions, not just because of his own merit and his own ability as a warrior. I mean, that's part of it too, but he is doing it in the name of Saul. He is doing it as a part of Saul's army, and he is doing it under Saul's command. A good leader, a leader that has his perspective correct, would look at David being credited with slaying ten thousands of Philistines as somebody under his command is a good thing. In a sense, that's a compliment to Saul as well because he has this person working for him. But that's not how Saul chooses to see it. And he did have a choice. This was something that he chose to do. He chose this perception, and he chose to follow up on it. But do you notice that he's not happy about the praise that he's given? You have the different women of Jerusalem actually coming out, not obligated, of their own volition They came out with music and they came out singing and talking about how wonderful Saul is that he has gone out and slain these thousands of Philistines and also David who has slain his 10,000 Philistines. And Saul completely misses the fact that these people are lauding praise on him and the good that he has done. All he can see, all he can focus on is that guy's getting more praise than me. That guy's getting more credit than me. People like that guy better than they like me. He completely misses the fact that they're praising and complimenting him, too. He can't even enjoy that because he is so focused on the fact that there is somebody else out there that is getting more praise and more credit than I am. You see how small and petty that is? You see how Saul being so laser-focused on what people were saying about David... That completely caused him to miss the good things that were being said about him. It's completely lost on him. It might as well have not happened in his own mind. It took what should have been a great moment for King Saul, a highlight of his kingship, and turned it into something ugly, and something that stuck in him, that festered in him like a cancer, and eventually led to his downfall. The second part of this is pride. Because, of course, there is a great deal of pride going into this. Yes, he does have envy, but the reason that that envy exists is because of Saul's own pride. You see, The reason he is able to perceive this difference in himself and David, and he's envious of David and getting that kind of praise, is specifically because he thinks he ought to be getting it. He thinks that it is something that is owed to him that he deserves the praise, that he deserves the credit. Look how great I am. I should be the one getting all of these things. I should be the one that they are lauding this praise of having slain 10,000 over. That should be mine. So ultimately, it is a question of pride. He believes that he is entitled to these things that is being given to another person because he's so great and so wonderful. But the thing is, a little bit of humility would have solved the pride and the envy and any greed that he felt over somebody getting something that he didn't have because there is an aspect of greed in all of this too. But if he had just had the humility and the perspective to say, man, isn't it a great thing that David, a young man like this, that's up and coming, that is a good friend of mine and he's been such a good friend to my son and he's done all these great things for Israel and it's all happened under my rule... Isn't it great that all these things are happening for David? He doesn't see any of that. All he can do is focus on how much praise he isn't getting because he is comparing himself to David. And if you look at the last part of that in verse 9, it says, And Saul eyed David with suspicion from that day on. Because of this, he assumes that David is after his kingdom. You see that in the sentence directly preceding that, where it says uh, that Saul replies to this is like, well, now what more can he have but the whole kingdom? See, he looks at, at David now as a political rival, as somebody who wants to take his kingdom from him because he's getting praise. David didn't make those women say that. David didn't convince these people to do this. He had no part in it. And yet all of a sudden, Saul is so bothered by this that he is convinced that, that David wants to kill him and usurp him and become king instead of Saul. Why? Because that's what Saul would have done. If the situation were reversed, and David was king, Saul was his servant, and David heard this song, or sorry, Saul heard heard this praise that, oh, Saul has killed these ten thousand Philistines. How great is Saul? He's even greater than the king then his immediate thought would have been, I can take this kingdom. I can take this kingdom away from David. I can be the guy in charge. You see, because that's something that Saul himself would do, he assumes that that's what David is thinking about right now. He assumes that this would turn David into a traitor, somebody who would be looking for an opportunity to take his throne and his kingdom away from him, because that's what Saul would do. And so because of this, Saul all of a sudden now looks at somebody who has been a friend of the family, really like a family member himself, as an enemy and somebody that he has to be on the lookout for. Somebody that is going to be trying to undermine him. You know, because of this, he becomes incredibly erratic. He becomes really kind of uh, paranoid about it. And it drives him to the point where he does all kinds of things that he has absolutely no business doing. To the point that he tries to kill David, to the point that he actually goes after a witch, somebody that he himself banished and tried to stamp out the sin of witchcraft. He himself breaks his own rules because he's so paranoid and thinks that David is going to kill him. He he thinks that that everybody's out to get him, that everybody's against him. He suffers from these paranoid delusions. And it all comes down to he believed that David was just as prideful as him, that David was just as ambitious as he would have been in David's shoes, and because of that, he assumed that David wanted to take his throne from him. Ultimately, I think what this shows us is that the surest way, the surest way to eliminate our own joy, to keep it to where we can no longer enjoy our own lives that we can no longer have that deep abiding joy that God wants for us is to compare ourselves to other people. If we're constantly busy looking around at everybody else, seeing the kind of praise that they're getting, the kind of accolades that they're getting, and going, why don't I have that? Comparing our lives, comparing our mission, comparing our relationship to God even, to other people. You want to destroy your own joy? That's the quickest way to do it. Constantly comparing yourself to others. Don't do it. It's not a good idea. Now, if you want to aspire to be better, if you want to learn from them, if you want to learn some things that you can do to, to reach, you know, a, a better level, being closer with your family, being closer to God, having a better prayer life, any of those things, okay, that's great. And in that sense, a little self-reflection and going, well, they're doing that. Maybe I could do that too. That That might be a good thing. But as far as comparing yourself to others, that never ends well just never does. Because we're all different, we're unique, we have different abilities, we have different strengths and weaknesses. It just never ends in a good place. And it's the same reason that Jesus, talking to Peter and and his apostles, when Peter asked, well, what's going to happen to me, Lord, when asking about John, he says, you don't worry about that. You don't worry about what's going to happen to John. You follow me. That's the only thing that matters to you. Don't, don't be so worried about what John what kind of fate John is going to face. You follow me. That's enough. And so, it reminds me of something that Ronald Reagan actually used to keep on his desk. He, he kept two things on his desk. One said it can be done. But the other is the one I want to focus on. Where he said there is no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. Now, Ronald Reagan is one of only 45 people to sit in the Oval Office. By anybody's measure, he is an incredibly accomplished person. But the reason that he got there is because he didn't really care who got credit. He wanted certain things done, and if he got credit for it, awesome. If he didn't, that's fine too. Saul took the exact opposite approach. The only thing Saul cared about was who got credit. It was the only thing that was important to him. It wasn't important that they just came back from a big victorious battle. It didn't matter to them that they did what God wanted them to do. It didn't matter to them that God and and Saul were on better terms now. It didn't matter that he had this amazing young man that he could have had a a really great friendship with for the rest of his life and and been a very strong and helpful ally. The only thing that mattered to him is, I'm not getting the credit that I deserve. In his own head, that was the problem. But the whole nation of israel is about to suffer for decades because of these four verses this is the thing that starts the ball rolling to this massive civil dispute between saul and david which culminates in a several years long span of saul pursuing david and wasting military you know military resources in his own time and energy, chasing after a man that not only doesn't want to kill him, on two occasions has the opportunity to kill him and says, no, I won't do that. And yet, Saul's paranoia, despite seeing this, continues to pursue David, continues to be worried that David is going to take his throne away from him. And he never does. And not just Saul, But the entire nation of Israel is going to suffer because of Saul's pride and his envy. You see, like Saul, we understand that there are going to be personal consequences for having too much pride or envying after somebody or being greedy after what another person has. But it doesn't just hurt us. It hurts the people around us. Now, we're not kings, all of us, and so it's probably not going to have national ramifications. But it is a good illustration of how our own sins, our own pride, putting ourselves above other people or comparing ourselves to them and and wanting to be them or wanting to get their accolades, it doesn't just hurt us. It poisons everybody around us, too. And if we want to avoid that, then we need to be the David in this story. The one that doesn't really care who gets the credit. Because ultimately, whatever we do, it's because God gave us the ability to. Whatever we do, it's because God allowed it to happen. And so, don't be worried about who gets the credit. Don't be worried about where the accolades go or or who is getting praise or who gets more praise than me. Even when I get praise, I want the kind of praise that the guy who got the most praise got. Don't do that to yourself. It never ends anywhere well. Just do what Christ recommended. Don't compare yourself to others. Look forward. Follow me. That's all you got to do. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.